This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce Thea Aubert to Politics and Prose. Aubert's work has appeared in The Best American Short Stories, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, and Zoe Trope, All Story, among many others. Her debut novel, The Tiger's Wife, won the 2011 Orange Prize for Fiction and was an international bestseller. Her new book, Inland, takes place in the lawless, drought-written lands of of the American West. Nora is an unflinching frontierswoman in the Arizona Territory, awaiting the return of her water-seeking husband and feuding older sons, and Lurie is a former outlaw and man haunted by ghosts as he traverses across Mexico and the United States by camel. Learning how Nora's and Lurie's stories collide is the surprise and suspense of this novel. Ron Charles of the Washington Post writes in his review, In this country, Aubert has found soil just as fertile for the propagation of myth and the complications of cruelty. The unsettling haze between fact and fantasy in Inland is not just a literary effect of Aubert's gorgeous prose. It's an uncanny representation of the indeterminate nature of life in this brutal place of, in this place of brutal geography. Sip slowly and make it last. Now, please join me in welcoming Taya Aubert. Hi, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Is this working? Oh, but like when I lean real close like this. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Thank you to Politics and Pros for having me. It's so lovely to be back here again. Um, I have been back as a customer but it's back to be. Uh, it's, it's nice to be back again after after eight years as a as a as, a, as an author too. Um, I thought I'd never do it. No, I'm kidding. Um, um, thank you all for for making it out on this uh, sort of strange weather day. Um, there was a storm. I know many of you had to drive through it. Then it went away. Now it's fine. Um, I barely flew in myself, so we're all here though. So that's nice. Um, I'm really grateful to you all. Um, my family's here. <laughs> Um, so I, um, I want to read a little bit from Inland and, and then I'll take questions. And I, I always sort of prefer the, the, the question portion to, to hearing myself, uh, read. Um, but, uh, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the book first and, and, and how it came about. Cause I, I seem to get that question a lot. Um, the first question I think anybody ever asks me is why, why would you write a Western? What drew you to the Western? Um, I grew up on Westerns. I think a lot of people did. Um, even though I, I grew up in, in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and I grew up on sort of classic uh, cowboy westerns, and the West was always a mythic and super romanticized landscape for me. Um, and I never myself uh, and uh, thought I'd end up writing one, and if you'd asked me eight years ago whether I would, uh, I would have been pretty shocked. Um, but I've always been very interested in myth-making, origin stories in particular, and the stories that we use to explain how things came to be and to justify why they stay the same, how and why we make myths, and how long their effects persist. Um, and I was thinking a lot about that um, when I first went to the Mountain West some years ago and found myself completely blown away and beguiled by its landscape and its check textures. And that feeling, it never left me. I longed for it when I was away, and I started wondering how it was possible to feel so incredibly homesick for a place where you have no familial or, cu or cultural ties. 
It struck me that that homesickness and that feeling of belonging probably sits at the head of the table of the American mythos in general. And I knew that I had to dig into the feeling and what it meant and where it came from and why it was rearing its head, especially given what I knew about the history of westward expansion. And so I was researching for a long time, random stories traveling around the West, to Wyoming, to South Dakota, to Arizona, Texas, um, looking for a story. And out of nowhere, I found this one um, on a podcast of all places uh, called Stuff You Missed in History Class. Some of you may be fans if you're if you're podcast nerds like me. Um, I am one. Um, this is actually a true story, or at least the bones of it are true. I couldn't believe it either. Um, when I first heard it, it was framed in the context of a campfire yarn about two homesteading women who are trapped on their ranch by a, a creature of potentially supernatural origins called the Red Ghost. Um, they liken it to a horse in the campfire yarn, which uh, extended from them uh, sort of all over the Arizona Territory in the 1890s, um, and was eventually linked back to uh, an obscure and really fascinating episode of American history uh, when the U.S. military brought camels over to Texas in 1856 to serve as pack animals uh, in the Southwest, which at the time was just being explored. Um, and I couldn't believe, when I first heard the story, I couldn't believe that, 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 that it was something I, I hadn't uh, ever encountered before. Um, it, and that it wasn't a bigger part of, of the myths that I knew. Um, and I started to dig into the research, which was sort of tenuous because um, there aren't very many primary sources. The experiment was considered a failure um, for reasons that you'll discover, hopefully, if you read the book. Um, but I found myself really drawn to these characters, these women on the homestead and uh, these men who had come over from the Ottoman Empire to take their camels west for the army. Um, and before I knew it, I was writing this book. Um, and it follows two characters, as you said. One is Lurie, um, and he starts life off um, in a sort of strange way. And I'm going to read you, to you from his section. He's the, he's the primary, well, he's the first voice that we hear in the book. I don't know if he's the primary voice we hear in the book. Ah, there's the, there's the echo. Can everyone hear me now? Yes? Okay. Um, sorry. Uh, so he's the first voice that, that we hear in the book, um, and this is him. When those men rode down to the fording place last night, I thought us done for. Even you must realize how close they came, their smell, the song of their bridles, the whites of their horses' eyes. True to form, blind though you are, and with that shot still irretrievable in your thigh, you made to stand and meet them. Perhaps I should have let you. It might have averted what happened tonight, and the girl would be unharmed. But how could I have known... I was unready, disbelieving of our fate, and in the end could only watch them cross and ride up the wash away from us in the moonlight. And wasn't I right to wait for habit, if nothing else? I knew you had flight in you, yet you still do, as do I, as I have all my life, since long before we fell in together, when I first came round to myself, six years old, and already on the run, wave-rocked, with my father in the bunk beside me, and all around the hiss of water against the hull. It was my father running back then, though from what, I never knew. He was thin, I think. Young, perhaps. A blacksmith, perhaps, or some other hard-laboring man who never caught more rest than he did that swaying month when night and day went undifferred and there was nothing but the creak of rope and pulley somewhere above us in the dark. He called me Sine, 
and some other name I've struggled lifelong to recall. Of our crossing, I remember mostly foam veins and the smell of salt, and the dead, of course, outlaid in their white shrouds side by side along the stern. We found lodging near the harbor. Our room overlooked laundry lines that cross-hatched from window to window until they vanished in the steam of the wash house below. We shared a mattress and turned our backs to the madman across the room and pretended he wasn't a bit further gone each day than the last. There was always somebody shrieking in the halls, somebody caught between worlds. I lay on my side and held the lapel of my father's coat and felt the lice roving through my hair. I never met a man so deep sleeping as my father. Dock work will do that, I reckon. Every day would find him straining under some crate of, or hump of rope that made him look an ant. Afterwards, he'd take my hand and let the river of disembarking bodies carry us away from the quays up the thoroughfare to where the steel scaffolds were rising. They were a marvel to him, curious as he was about the world's workings. He had a long memory, a constant toothaches, and an abiding hatred of Turks that tended to flare up when he took tea with like-minded men. But a funny thing would happen if ever some Serb or Magyar started in about the iron fist of Stambul. My father, so fixed in his enmity, would grow suddenly tearful. Well, Effendi, he'd say, are you better off now? Better off here? Ali Pasha Rizvan Begovic was a tyrant, but far from the worst. At least our land was beautiful. At least our homes were our own. Then would follow wistful reminiscences of his boyhood village, a tumble of stone houses split by a river so green he had no word for it in his new tongue and had to say it in the old one, thus trapping it forever as a secret between the two of us. What I'd give to remember that word. I could not think why he would leave such a town for this reeking harbor, which turned out to be the kind of place where praying palms up and a name like Haji Osman Juric got him mistaken for a Turk so often that he disowned both. I believe he called himself Hodgman Druri for a while, but he was buried Hodj Luri, thanks to our landlady's best guess at the crowded consonants of his name when the hearse came to take his body away. Our mattress, I remember, was stained. I stood on the stairs to watch the coachman load my father into his wagon. When they drove off, the landlady put her hand on my head and let me linger. The evening downpour had withdrawn, so a sunset read in the street. The horses looked ablaze. After that, my father never came to me again, not in the waters and not even in dreams. That landlady, she prayed night after night before a cross on the wall. Her mercy got me hard bread and a harder mattress. In return, I took to praying with my palms together and helped tend her lodgings, ran up and down stairs with buckets of soap water, hunted rats, wedged myself up chimneys. Staring men who sat in the shadows sometimes lunged for me. I was a skin and bones kid, but unafraid enough of stairwell drunks to kick them while they slept, so they learned to leave me alone. Another summer, another plague, another visit from the coachman and his black horses, another and another. A mess of script appear on our, appeared on our curb post. Can you read this? The landlady asked me. It says, pest house. Do you know what pest house means? It turned out to mean empty rooms, empty purse, empty bellies for us both. When the coachman next came round, she sent me away with him. Just stood there, staring down at the coin he put in her hand. I bunked in the coachman's stable for a year. He was the cleanest man I ever knew. Couldn't get to sleep without his house just so and his slippers side by side under the bed. The only unevenness to him was an upper tooth that had come in a tusk, leaving him, giving him the look of a fancy rat. Together, we went round the dens and flea houses on Bleecker Street to collect the dead. Lodgers who'd passed in their sleep or had their throats cut by bunkmates. 
Sometimes they were still in their beds with the sheets drawn over them when we arrived, but just as often we'd find them folded into trunks or stuffed under floorboards. Those with cash and kin we took to the undertaker. The nameless we drove uptown to the hospitals and delivered through back doors so they could be tabled before wakes of looming young men. Their innards laid out and their bones boiled white. When trade was slow, we'd have to pull them from churchyards. Two dollars to the gatekeep to look the other way while we walked among the crosses searching out newly turned mounds. The coachman would start a tunnel where he guessed the head might be, and I would wedge down shoulders and arms all the way into the cold earth and stab forward with my iron until I broke the coffin boards. Then I'd feel about with my fingers till I found hair or teeth and ease a noose over the head. It took both of us to pull them out. Still easier than digging them up, was the coachman's reasoning. Sometimes the mound fell in on itself, and sometimes the body caught and we had to leave it there half dug. And sometimes there were women, and sometimes kids too, and the graveyard earth couldn't be got out of my clothing no matter how hot the washhouse kettle. Once, we found two people sharing a coffin face to face as though they'd fallen asleep in it together. Once I put my hand in and felt only the give of earth and the damp velvet of the pillow. Somebody's beat us here, I said. It's empty. Once I broke through the boards and moved my fingers over coarse hair and skin and was just getting the rope past a reef of jawbone when fingers grabbed my wrist somewhere in the dark. They were dry fingers, hard-tipped. I started and dirt flew down my throat and into me. I kept kicking, but the fingers held on till I thought I'd disappear down that hole. Please, I can't do it again, I sobbed afterwards, but I could, it turned out, with a broken wrist and a twisted shoulder, too. Once, a great big fella got stuck halfway out his coffin. I sat there in the dirt with his pale arm on my knees until the coachman handed me a saw. I carried that arm all the way uptown, wrapped in its own burlap sleeve on my shoulder like a ham. Some evenings later, I saw that same torn sleeve on a one-armed giant who stood unmoving in the fish market crowd. He was pale and round and stood smiling shyly at me, as though we were old friends. He drifted closer, hugging that empty sleeve till he stood at my side. It seems an odd thing to say, but a thin tickle spread around me, and I knew he'd put that ghost arm around my shoulders. That was the first I ever got this strange feeling at the edges of myself, this want. He let forth a rueful sigh, as if we'd been talking all the while. God, he said, God, I've an awful hunger. I'd love a nice cod pie, wouldn't you, little boss? Fuck you, I said, and fled. I did eventually stop glancing over my shoulder for him, but that feeling, that strange feeling of want at the corners, it stayed. For days afterward, I would wake to whirling hunger and lie in the dark with my heart in my ears and my mouth running, as if something within was digging me up. Ordinary rations couldn't sate it. The coachman sat counting my spoonfuls at mealtime. That's enough, he'd say, but it wasn't enough, and what he berated me for was only the half of it, because he wasn't around to watch me scrounge for apples fallen from the fruit cart or wait until the grocer's back was turned to steal rolls. He wasn't around, either, when the baker girl came down the street with that basket on her arm so huge it listed at her one side shouting fish pie cod pie whenever someone stopped her she flipped up a checkered napkin to reveal a mountain of doughy knots cod pie she asked me like she knew about the want going sour in me i sank five whole pies crouching in an alley with the laundresses shouting to each other above me and as i ate the want grew and grew in me until it ran over and was all gone I wouldn't feel it again till years after we'd been caught, after the workhouse, after the judge passed sentence and sent the coachman upriver, and me to the railhead with six or seven other boys, westbound, with papers in my hand that read only Lurie. Um, 
so that's the start of Lurie's story. And he ends up on an orphan train in Missouri. And um, he joins a, an out, a gang of outlaws. His brothers become outlaws, and he's sort of conscripted into it because fraternity, I think, is something that he's he's always after. Um, and um, his journey starts in, in 1856 and goes forward um, through time. Uh, and when we meet Nora... We're in 1893, and she's the other strand of the book. And I'll give you a little reading from her section, and then I'll be really happy to ask uh, to take questions. I'll be really happy to ask questions. I'm going to ask them. You're going to answer them. It's going to be good. So this is in a town called Amargo in Arizona Territory in 1893. Toby came running back from the creek empty-handed to tell her he'd found more tracks down by the water this time. All right, Nora said, show me. She reined up and followed her youngest into the gulch. The trail narrowed between high bluffs and led out among the black imbrications of an ancient riverbed before winding for a quarter mile through cottonwoods and down to the shore. Little remained of the stream now save glossy September mud and the wakes of what few salamanders had managed to evade Toby. He pointed to where his bucket had dropped. Them's the tracks. Those are, Nora said. It relieved her to see his hair growing back. Through three sons and 17 years of motherhood, shaving had borne out as the only successful campaign against lice, but its effects were decidedly punitive. Toby looked like a deserter from some urchin militia sentenced to bear the badge of his dishonor. What if this time history should fail him, leaving him bald forever? He made a sorry little man as it was, too thin for seven, soft and golden and clued up with doubt, prone to his father's wilding turn of mind. This business with the tracks had rooted deep displacing all his other worries and earning him the derision of his brothers, Rob and Dolan, who wouldn't brook a child's ghost story now that they were so adamantly men. The only solution they were charitable enough to entertain, just say the word and we'll bait it, Tobe, ran thoroughly against his inclinations, for Toby had no great wish to see the beast, merely to be believed in the matter of its existence. Last week, the boys had taken him out to the abandoned Flores claim, site of the track's initial manifestation to cure him of his nonsense. By what means, Nora could not guess, though she had managed to refrain from warning them to mind his bad eye, they were her boys, her boys, Emmett's sons. Recent outbursts aside, they were upright and vigilant, careful with others in general, and with Toby in particular. Still, she had waited on the porch until they appeared in the red boil of twilight, two horses dragging long shadows, Dolan bobbing stoutly along, Rob a few yards ahead and so starved looking at 16 that she wondered how he was managing to keep Toby upright in the saddle before him with just one arm. Well, she called, did you bare your teeth to whatever's out there? Rob lifted him down. There weren't nothing out there but some grouse and an empty old turtle shell and we're all agreed that none of them is fixing to haunt Toby ever again. A tiny smile dragged the corner of Toby's mouth and the matter seemed at an end. But then followed morning after morning of Toby at breakfast, his eyes red with sleeplessness, chin slipping from his hand, mishandled eggs staining the henyard in his wake, nights while her husband Emmett hunched over his sentinel drafts in the kitchen and Rob and Dolan lay dead to the world upstairs, Nora put her ear to Toby's door and listened to the restless rasp of his body under the covers. 
Predictably, Emmett traced their son's distress to what they were now calling last year's mischance. Anything that went sideways with Toby could be explained away by it, a fall from horseback last March, indistinct by all appearances from any of the dozen Toby had brushed off over the years, so very ordinary in its course that Nora hadn't even bothered to go to him when he fell. I doubt it could have been helped. Doc Almanara had assured her later, having declared it a miracle that Toby wasn't blinded outright. They had been waiting ever since on the sight in his left eye to return, and for reprieve from some of the accident's other miseries, headaches that set him retching, lightning that streamed through his field of vision, an inability to distinguish waking from dreaming. He had come to fear the dark, and the shapes that roared out at him from the electric chasm of injured sleep. To make matters worse, he mistook Nora's tenderness for pity, which she found unfair. She could not help wanting, on those frequent occasions when he bumped a wall or missed a cup handle, to seize his little head and hold it in both hands. Had he been too young to question her or old enough to understand, Toby might have grit his teeth through such attentions, but he was just the right age to find them unbearable. Luckily, however, it was past him to question why she might be crouching streamside with him now and making a big show of hearing him out. Look, he said, see? She looked. Familiar disturbances marred the bank, a crisscross of skunk and quill pig trails, the smooth sidewind of a snake crossing the wash. There, Toby said, and there. See how it's sunk in at the top? He was pointing to a dent about the size of a small plate. The drag of his finger through the mud succeeded only in making it look like a picture book heart. Anything else? He showed her where he thought he could see a few more scuffs scraping off into the sage and up the old game trail with its trim of heat-withered grass. It must have gone up that way, Toby said, loosing these rocks as it went. Care to offer a thought on what it is? Well, it ain't small. To prove this, he beckoned her to the overgrown hackberry stand just up the shore. Its branches were stripped bare all the way around. The few remaining berries, a withered orrery of orange globes, were all packed way back against the bowl. See? There's not a creature alive won't make quick work of hackberries in a drought, Tobe. She grew irritated. Say for Josie, it seems. Didn't I tell her come and get the rest of these picked before the birds beat her to it? She shouldered in for a fruit and offered it to Toby, but he only squeezed it until its skin snapped and the grit ran between his fingers. Then he wiped his hand on his trouser leg. He was sulling. What's the matter? You think I'm telling tales? He said, you won't even look around. Aren't I looking? Not like you really think you'll find anything. She seized her trouser legs and shoved into the thicket, pretending to look for sign. The boys still called this hillside the Antelope Trail, though any namesake antelope were long gone, having wised up quick enough to the shoddy little blind Emmett had built at the top of the gulch back when they were newcomers here. These days, the slope was a scald of dead grass, one switch back after another, twisting all the way up the red face of the bluff. The only heartbeat around might belong to the occasional chaparral cock scurrying from scrub to scrub. Here was one now, of course. It took off the moment her shadow touched it. She stood in a drowse among the new ironwoods, still pretending. The sun had got into her. Damn near all morning she had gone without thinking of her thirst. Something miraculous had happened while she slept to make it seem as matter-of-fact as breathing. She was slow and warm and glad now that Toby had delayed her going into town. She could take less frenzied stock of matters. That Emmett was th three days late returning from Cumberland with water was not so unusual. He could be no later than this evening, and there was a little water yet in the rain barrel to last until then. 
and nor was it unusual to find Rob and Dolan's beds empty. They had managed to pack up in the dark and make their way to the print house, as they often did, without waking her. As soon as she had put Toby's fears to rest, she would ride into town with their lunch, the long way, calm and unhurried. She might even feel brave enough to stop by Desma's place and pick up the elk steaks after all. Call on Harlan, perhaps, and see if the sheriff's day was slow going. There's nothing up here, Tobe, she said. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, sorry, I should have drank water before I started. <laughs> um, I would be really, really happy to take any questions that you might have. I knew, I know it's a new book, and I suppose no one has read it yet because it came out two days ago, if if at all. But um, <laughs> um, I'd love, I'd love to answer any questions you have. Okay, here comes a question. Oh yes, there's mics. There's two microphones. We're supposed to stand in front of the mics. Um, I'm interested in your magic magic realism. I grew up in a country where, which was very animated and animistic. And when I came to live in my own country, everything all of a sudden got really logical and flat. Interesting. So can I ask where you grew up? Uh, in Southeast Asia, in in the Philippines. But I mean, you go to a Chinese house, there's the red face God, the kitchen God, the, you know, there's, there's ghosts everywhere. There's Mm -hmm. the Aswang, there's all sorts of place spirits and ghosts. Mm And um, I didn't find that here. And so I want to know how you grew up, because your first book certainly had a lot of animism in it. And how did you find something in the United States? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Thank you for that question. Um, So it's interesting, because I I, I think um, there's a kind of... Um, I don't want to, well, uh, I'm going to answer the, the second part of your question first. I think that American ghosts are, are, are sort of strange and different than, than ghosts in other, in other places. Um, in, in sort of precisely the way that you described, I think that, um, here in the mythos here, they're anomalous and elsewhere connections with the spirit world and the supernatural and, and divinity, uh, tends to be sort of a more everyday thing. Um, if that, if that makes sense, it's, it's taken, it's taken for, 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 for granted. And certainly where I grew up, that was, that was the case. Um, we're a really superstitious people. And, uh, and, and, and folks will tell you that, that, that maybe in the Balkans, you know, those things have changed, but I don't, I don't think that they really, really have. I mean, certainly my household and every other household I've ever known is very super superstitious. Um, so I think, uh, I was very fortunate to come across this story. Um, and, and I think that the, the way that, ghosts operated in the West for me was twofold. Um, first of all, when I went out there, it felt, um, wherever I went out there, it felt really, really haunted. Um, there's a lot of history. It's a very turbulent history. We're coming to terms with how turbulent that history is. Um, and I think that any, that kind of turbulence and instability, whether it's, um, whether it's geographic or political or, or spiritual or psychological, uh, whatever affects the living, to me felt like it would inherently affect the dead. Um, and at the time, the, uh, the trend in the U S was, was really particularly on, uh, on, on the, in the, in what was called the Atlantic States, where we are, um, was towards spiritualism. There was a lot of technology being developed 
and people uh, really believed that you could access the dead by technological means. That 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 technology was just going. That all well, we you know we were one step away from from the telegraph to to the other world. Um, and so I was really interested in in that too, and and um, how that operated. And then I stumbled on this story, which was just full of ghosts inherently. Um, and I felt I considered myself really really lucky, and I was probably drawn to it. I mean, I was drawn to it because it was about um, immigrants from the Ottoman Empire, and it because it it necessarily had to feature this homesteading woman uh, who I was interested in learning more about. Um, but I think that because it had these ghosts in it, I, it, I, I was immediately drawn to it and, and possibly, uh, what I had been waiting for was a story just like this one, if that makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. <gasps> Poet. So, um, I'm interested in finding out who your base is. I mean, where are you coming from relative to literature? Who do you read and who do you think has fed into this particular story? Sure. Um, that's a great question. I think, um, for sure. I mean, my, my, my base is, um, Mikhail Bulgakov, um, and, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Okay. Ghost on ghost on ghost on ghost. Um, so, um, but I, I, I read a lot of Shirley Jackson recently. Um, I've, uh, I mean, Toni Morrison, of course, also ghosts. Um, I, I would say that there, um, the, the Western influence has been slightly more recent. Um, I love Ivan Doig. I don't know if people here have read him. He's super well-known on the West Coast and, like, not that well-known here. Uh, I've discovered I hadn't heard of him until recently, and he's amazing. Um, you should start with a book called The... What? Oh, I thought somebody was saying. Sorry? The, yes. Yeah. Dancing at the what? Dancing at the Rascal Fair. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty varied. Yeah. Um... Thank you for your question. Hi, Taya. Nice Hi. to see you. Hi. Um, so you're talking about ghosts and ghosts haunt people, visit people. I'm wondering if in your writing process, your characters visit you unexpected at the, well, maybe you don't have go to the laundromat, but out <laughs> at the grocery store, wherever you may be, do they just pop over your shoulder and tell you, where 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 to take them um oh i live in new york so i have to go to the laundromat <laughs> um, but but yeah no um they they really really do thank you for for that question um they um i think it's it's something it's a, it's it's a particular well it's 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 a two part question i i think that they when they aren't visiting at the beginning you know that you're in in the generative phase of something um there are two parts to writing for me. I recommend them highly to other people who write. The first is the generative phase when you are building scaffolding and, and the meat of something for yourself. Um, and you are getting into the story and you're learning about it and you're trying to figure out why you're there and who the characters are. 
uh, and then you finish a draft and you've, you've decided on some things, right? You've decided who the characters are, uh, maybe what the point of view is, perhaps a couple of themes have emerged that you can sort of vaguely see, even though you're not really going to be able to see your, your, your big themes until you get to the end of the final draft and then someone else points at something and you're like, Oh yeah, I meant to do that. Wow. Uh, Um, but, um, once you're finished with, with, with the first, the, with the, once you're in the second draft, um, you begin to make choices about your characters. Um, you start to be able to predict their reactions to certain things. Um, and that's when they start visiting you. And if they're not visiting you by then, um, then, you know, I think that, that perhaps you haven't delved deeply enough into them. And that's always the case for me when they start showing up, when I start to see coincidences in life that a character would react to, or I start to think about, you know, um, I start to think about, um, uh, something in, in real life reminds me of a character. I know that I'm deep enough in, into a, a narrative to, to that. And then it's really coming to, to, to overtake everything else. Um, and in the final phase of the process, you know, uh, uh, people here who've written novels, short stories, poems, essays, um, in the last stretch, you don't even want to leave that world. And it feels very, very strange to, to, to go out and, and sort of function normally among people and then be like, but there's, there's all these made up people waiting for me. I have to get back to them or I'm going to forget what I wrote last. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, Here comes someone. Hi. Hi. Your language is so gorgeous. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you um, very much. You know, it's often poetic. Um, It's a full appeal to the senses. As you were just reading now, I could see it. I could hear it. I could smell it. How much of that comes out in the first draft versus the last draft? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, I think uh, I'm a big believer in in sort of maximum... uh, maximum loading up of the first draft. Um, and I don't have any, oops, I don't have any problems cutting stuff out. So, um, something that I've come to learn about myself as a writer is that I will say the same thing three or four different ways it one in one sentence after the other. And then it becomes really pleasurable and, and sort of, um, surgical to come back in the second draft and try to pull that apart and say, here's three ways you've said it, say it one way, um, and, and make it like the one way you want to say it. Um, the, the danger of that is that you can sort of over, um, over massage it and move stuff around a little bit. And then the sound of it doesn't feel the flow of it isn't normal. I actually just found a, uh, I, I had just texted my editor. This is a terrible confession to make. I, I found a, a, a line in the book and I'm not going to tell you where it is, where I had accidentally in the final, final, final copy edit put in a word thinking to myself, why hadn't I used this word in this sentence before? And of course it was because the word was already in the sentence just much earlier on. And so now it's in there twice. Um, so <laughs> everything's ruined No, Um, but, but so, so, um, so language is, 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 um, something at first to sort of get it all down on paper for me. And then as you figure out the voice of the characters and the voice of the narrative and what really, really needs to, what, what the real sort of propulsive mechanism for the, for the language rather than the plot is, um, you, you tweak it toward, toward that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, these are great questions. You said that there weren't too many primary sources for 
some of this, and I was just wondering how you did your research. Could you talk about it? Sure, absolutely. I'd be I'd be really happy to talk. I'd be really happy to talk about the research. Um, I've been doing it for years. Um, so actually, uh, uh, just to sort of go back to to, to your question, um, um, uh, poet, you have a hat that says poet. <laughs> um, um, a, a lot of what I read while uh, uh, writing this book were. Um, homesteading diaries and uh, newspapers of the time just to get a feel for the language and then sort of try to tweak it a little bit. Um, try to get it a little close to the time, but not overly archaic so that it didn't feel like, you know, pirates walking off a ship in a weird movie. Um, <laughs> but um, the, so the primary sources that exist for this are two diaries. One is of Edward Fitzgerald Beale, who was the superintendent of the expedition that took camels from a place called Fort Defiance in New Mexico to a place called Fort Tejon in California, along what is now Route 66. Camels take Route 66. You don't know this, but now you do. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I didn't know what I, it's amazing. It's just unbelievable. Um, and so, uh, I, um, I read that diary. The diary is available, um, because it's a, it's a military document. It's in the archives. Um, and he was sort of very detailed about the camels. He was doubtful about the use of the camels, uh, uh, at first, um, because they sort of, they, they wilded the mules and, and the, the soldiers didn't like them. And, um, but he came to regard them as sort of like really stupendously reliable and like really good natured false. Um, and, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, like just, just really like go getters, you know? Um, and so as the diary progresses, you can really, really see in it how invested he is in, in in, in imparting this to his superiors who are supposed to sign the check for the next load of camels. Right. Um, so in that diary, there's a lot of, we didn't lose a single camel. We didn't lose a single man and it was all wonderful. And there was plenty of water on the route. Um, uh, <laughs> the other diary belonged to his, uh, assistant, a young man called May Humphrey Stacy, who was just sort of an excitable, uh, 18 year old who was along for the ride and couldn't believe that he got to go on this, uh, you know, wonky adventure in the West, but he didn't surprisingly, um, he didn't focus on the camels at all. And he didn't focus on the cameleers at all. He didn't see them. Um, and, uh, I found that really, really fascinating. Uh, and so one of the things that I wanted to do for the book was to take moments that he detailed, like, um, the finding of this unbelievably large fish, um, and, uh, the delivery of a corn mill to this priest in the mountains, um, and turn them into adventures that the cameleers were also present for, but just happened to be unseen in this diary. Um, and we went on, my mom and I went on a, on a, on a big road trip, uh, on, uh, along all the longitude and latitudes that, that, that were chronicled in the, uh, in the military diary. And, and we got to see all the places where they camped. Uh, one of them is the Albuquerque Greyhound station now. Um, one of them is a church. Uh, it's wild. And, and, but many of them are, are exactly as they were 160 years ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was very, it was very immersive and very exciting. And also loads of newspapers. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. It's my favorite question, so I answer it for a long time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. How are we doing on time? Are we good? Okay. Any more questions? Uh-huh. Oh. Hello. Hello. Um, so 
in Tiger's Wife, which I loved, by the way. Thank you. Uh, you have this mythical animal, and I'm understanding you from inland. There are mythical animals in this book too. Sure. <laughs> so, <clears throat> where does that come from? Are you an animal person? Um, and can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. It turns out um, animals wander into all my work pretty early on, and if they don't, it, the work isn't that great. And I don't know what that's about at all. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, it, I, I think that um, in this book. I think the animal serves a, a different... The, the book is in many ways about the bond between Lurie, who, who we heard from at the beginning, um, and his camel, Burke. Um, and I think that Burke in this story serves a different psychological and emotional purpose than the tiger and the tiger's wife did. So it, it, it felt a little different to do it. But on the whole, I think... Um, I'm very interested in who people are when no one's watching, who they are in isolation, um, when they're not accountable to anybody. Um, and I think that people have the idea that they're most themselves when they're around animals, when they're in the presence of animals. Um, they feel watched and unwatched at the same time. It's like a very strange, um, it's a very strange dynamic. Um, particularly because... The, the story that we tell about animals tends to be that they're these beautiful, pure, uh, uh, you know, untouched things and that by our sole presence on earth, we sully them. But the ones that we value most are the ones that we can anthrop anthropomorphize the most. It's all very strange. So um, I think that my interest comes from from that. Just who are we when we're, when we're with our animals, how they bring out our own humanity and how they allow us allow us to delude ourselves into thinking we're uh, we're maybe sometimes who we're not or who we want to be. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Hello. Um, how do you decide on a title for the book? Do you, how do you extract that from the book or place that importance? Um, that's a really great question. In the past, I've certainly, um, if I'm reading something and I find it a particularly interesting turn of phrase, um, it'll strike me as a title sometimes and I'll just sort of write it down in like my title, my title bank. Um, and, uh, and I've come up with some good titles that way, but this one was very odd. I was reading a newspaper article about the arrival of a railroad, um, which, which, which features in this though, though not as heavily as it does in, in, in many other Westerns. Um, and the, the person who had written to the editor was complaining about the fact that if the railroad, um, bypassed them, they'd be inland forever um and what they meant and then i sort of researched the, the the terminology a little bit and i realized that inland meant in in this particular context didn't mean away from the coast but away from the railroad and i thought wow that's interesting away from what like civilization or the center of power of of you know this this growing nation what what does it mean and i and i um and i sort of stored it in my mind, I didn't even write it down in the bank. And then the first time I wrote a paragraph of this, I saved it as inland, which is odd and, and, but amazing to think back on now. Cause it was its title from, from the get go. Um, so yeah, yeah, just, just pull them, pull them from everywhere and hold on to them and the right use for them will come around. I think is the, is the, the way. Thank you. Thanks so much. Other questions?
Here comes somebody. Oh. Let's go. Hi. Hi. Uh, I really enjoyed reading The Tiger's Wife. Thank you. And uh, didn't do any research on your background, but you mentioned that you grew up in Yugoslavia. I did, yeah. And so I'm curious about your writing. Has it always been in English? Is it always in English now? What other linguistic influences are there on your writing? Sure, absolutely. Um, it, it has. I've always written in English. Um, I um, I am uh, flu. I, I have. Well, I'm I'm pretty fluent in 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 the in the languages of the of the former Yugoslavia, um, particularly Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian. But I I I, I wouldn't. Uh, I can read it, but I can't write it. Um, <laughs> uh, so. It's always been English for me, but I, um, I think that there are sometimes turns of phrase that, that feel particularly familiar in a different sort of verb formation to me. Uh, we use a lot of verbs more actively than English does, um, in a really strange way. And then we can bastardize adjectives into verbs at, at will. Um, it's not grammatically correct, but it's sort of acceptable. Um, and so you do it in a colloquial way. And I, 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 I tend to find myself trying to do that in English. Um, and, and it's a fun, fun way to, I think it's a fun way to play with language. So that definitely has, has an influence on me. Um, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for sharing with us. Sure. Uh, the Western genre in general hasn't been so kind to indigenous peoples. Sure. And so I was curious about like in 2019, writing a new novel in the Western genre, how, how you incorporated it and also how you addressed using indigenous peoples or what choices you made there. So as to like, maybe not be fetishistic or offensive to certain communities in the Southwest. So I was just super curious about that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so it was, it was in, in some ways, it was a it was a, a formal concern and a moral concern too, as you as you're talking about. So, um, because the story arrived in the form that it did in this podcast, I was excited to explore these particular people. This this um, homesteading woman and this immigrant from this immigrant and his camel, particularly the camel, but then also the writer. <laughs> um, and, and, and I felt really lucky because in doing the research for um, these characters on whom the perspective was from the beginning going to have to be really, really close because so much of the novel is about um, blindness and what people don't see and what people are taught. Um, the perspective was going to have to be really close to them. Mm-hmm. So... I knew from the research that I could surround them and embed in their lives the full range of people who, who had settled or previously lived in the Southwest. Um, and, and there was a lot of, you know, indigenous Mexicans, um, uh, you know, more sort of more recently arrived uh, Mexican people with Spanish roots, um, uh, people who had arrived from Greece, from from uh, the Ottoman Empire, just the whole. But but in in many ways, it's a it's a it's a settler narrative, right? Because it is about settlement. The people are different, but um, so knowing that I wasn't going to broach. There are very few stories about the camels in. Uh, in, in native narratives. They do exist, but 
Um, there are very few of them. They tend to be really, really personal narratives about families coming across camels uh, around the 1880s. Um, and those are earned stories. And uh, there are people there who, there, there are storytellers now who, who have a lot more insight into them. And that perspective is, uh, I, I, I'd like to hear from them. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have any business telling a, a Native American story about camels in the Southwest. Um, however, I think that um, I did want to address, since I couldn't do that, I didn't feel right about doing that, I did want to address earnestly uh, the dynamics between settlers and Native people. And for that, I knew that I couldn't make so many of my characters, some of the good guys. I didn't want to, I didn't want to just be like, well, these are people with, you know, they're my protagonists. So they have 2019 politics and, and, you know, they, yeah. they, they, it, and, and that's a hard thing to do. I think to throw your character under the bus like that. Um, it feels wrong, yeah. um, because you're protective of your characters, but I think it's necessary that if, if you, if you're going to write about history, to write about it from a psychologically accurate perspective, even if it's uncomfortable for you. And even if it's uncomfortable for the reader, um, if that makes sense, I don't yeah, know. If, if, yeah. um, so thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks. Sure. One more, one more or no more. No. Yeah. We're done. Okay, well, oh, oh, there's one question. Yes, ma'am. Since most people here have read The Tiger's Wife, which I must admit I met read several okay. years ago, uh, and don't remember that clearly, but where did the idea from that come from? Oh, for that? Yeah. Um, sure. Um, it, it um, well, it was a, it was a sort of a, a, a more not more personal. It was, I'm, because I was from the former Yugoslavia and my grandfather had, died. Um, and it had come as a, as a huge shock to me. I sort of started writing about this village in the mountains, um, in an unnamed Balkan country. Um, and, uh, the way I connected it to the present moment was by making this child the grandfather of a narrator. And when that happened, I didn't see the con I didn't see the connection um, that there was sort of something being worked out psychologically there. But um, the uh, the zoo of of Belgrade, um, Yugoslavia's capital city, was bombed in in 1941 um and uh animals loads of animals did escape and that's sort of a, 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 a myth about the time it's a, it's a, it's a kind of it's it's taken on folkloric dimension in the history um of of that country and uh, and that was something that i wanted to wanted to explore Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. I always wondered. It was a sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Politics and Pros, for hosting me. I really appreciate it. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.